The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 168 is something like, what accounts for the appearance of design in the natural world? And we read Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, chapters 1 through 4, 6, and 14. First edition was published in 1859, with the sixth and final edition that we read published in 1872. To get the reading and more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, who is not descended from no monkey, in Madison, Wisconsin. Wow. This is Seth Paskin being crowded out by another species in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey sitting in my niche in Sunnyvale, California. See, if we had more uh, participants on the podcast in Boston, then Wes would have to come up with things because the competition. But you have your own niche that you, it's, mm. it's unhealthy. You're too rare. And once you're he's rare. Like a pan- he's like a panda. <laughs> <laughs> Soon to go extinct. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about pandas later, about how they should be extinct, except for the natural selection of human beings interfering with them. <laughs> well, I've shown uh, the ability to mate in captivity, so that's... Um, um. <laughs> <laughs> you domesticated. <laughs> so, why Darwin? Why are we doing this? Dylan, do you want to give us the introduction from your perspective to give us the background and, and <laughs> however you approach this introductory thing that we now are doing? Okay. So as Mark said, Origin of Species was published in 1859. It follows the contribution of Darwin and another evolutionist named Alfred Wallace, who gave joint papers to... Uh, scientific society called the Linnaean Society, both of them regarding evolution and natural selection. And Wallace is generally co-credited with the original natural selection argument, though, as is true in The Origin of Species, Darwin has a, a laundry list of people that he gives some credit for some of the prior thinking about natural selection. Darwin himself considered the book an abstract that was supposed to be prior to a much longer and more detailed book that was supposed to follow. That second book didn't follow. He, of course, wrote other books, but he never did publish a much longer version. The book itself is really an extended argument, and the core of it is, I think, in the first, in the chapters that we read. There are really interesting and important things in the later chapters, but the heart of it is in the ones we read. And if you, even if you just get to have a faint familiarity with the theory of evolution, which I expect most of our audience does, you'll recognize that just from the titles of the chapters. So he starts in the first chapter with variation or domestication, where he presents cases of human exploitation of variation in animals through breeding to generate dramatically new varieties by selective breeding. And the centerpiece of that discussion is of the huge differences among pigeon varieties, which he, in the original edition, has these pictures of pigeon varieties in there, and then he argues that all of them come from the wild rock pigeon, that you could start with two rock pigeons 
and that looked utterly normal, like something you'd find in your city streets. And if you selectively bred them, you'd come up with any one of the varieties that you see. He then moves on to variation in nature, where he presents variations amongst the species observed within nature and argues that well-marked variations within any given species are incipient species. So he blurs the line. In fact, he just negates the line between variations within species and species themselves. And that indeed the distinction between them is just that eventually species are differentiated enough that they can't co-produce. And that that distinction is essentially a kind of a pragmatic distinction of their inability to crossbreed. The third chapter, Struggle for Existence, is the last piece before going full bore onto natural selection. He brings up natural selection here, sort of foreshadowing it, where he presents that main mechanism that organisms as a species get selected according to the alignment of their own ability to reproduce with their environment that is broadly understood. And he goes on in this uh, chapter to explain the kinds of things that species struggle against and the kinds of competition that they have in order to survive, at least to be able to reproduce. And chapter four, natural selection, he finally puts together the pieces as pointed out in the previous chapters. Natural selection works exactly in the same manner as domestic selection as is performed by mankind, but infinitely more powerful because it acts on the smallest and most invisible differences over extraordinarily long periods of time. And the result at the end of his book is a long explanation of a great tree of life in which current species are descended from common ancestors, which themselves can be traced further back unto other common ancestors. So we'll go into that in more detail. I wanted to say that just as a book, The Origin of Species was originally meant to be a popular book, and it was read very widely in the 1860s. And it's a pretty pleasant read overall. Darwin himself, I would not call him a great writer, but he is a competent writer, if at times a little bit stilted. One of the things I like most about Darwin's book is just his earnest enthusiasm throughout the book. There's just these times where he just bursts out with the love of the bigness of living things. So what was your question for this episode, Mark? What accounts for the appearance of design in the natural world? So I, I guess I would ask the question that I see as most relevant is how is evolution possible? Because I want to tease apart the idea of evolution from the idea of natural selection. Really, what Darwin is focused on in this book is establishing a mechanism for evolution. And evolution itself, it's an idea that had been around for quite some time by the, by the time Darwin gets to this. It's not novel to think that species of animal were related to each other or grew out of each other. So apparently Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, for instance, had been playing around with this idea. And then there's this guy, Lamarck, who I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, who also had a theory of evolution. He just had a different theory of what the mechanism was for biological evolution. And then, of course, the broader concept of evolution is something we've encountered philosophically, and it goes back to the ancients, but most notably Hegel in history. I think it's worth remembering that what Darwin is doing is he's looking at something which seems to intuitively be true, and then he's trying to explain how it can be true in a really as rigorous a way as possible. And 
he's really handicapped in that attempt to explain things. I think this is one of the things that's really genius about the book is he doesn't know about genetics yet. And there are lots of other problems. You know, Darwin will talk very frankly about all the problems with his theory, the incompleteness in the fossil record, his lack of knowledge of what he calls the laws of variation, which will turn out to be genetics. So there's a very kind of theoretical, speculative quality to what he's doing. It's a very abstract thing, but he still is able, despite all the deficiencies and specifics, to lay this general theoretical groundwork that really set the paradigm, the the course for a whole project of study to fill in the gaps. So it's an interesting sort of hybrid of a book, you know, all of this very concrete, careful observation, and on the other hand, the sort of theoretical brilliance to it. So I suggested this reading this time, just in wake of our of what we just did for Hume. You know, I was kind of given the taste for doing some natural philosophy by our recent Stuart Humphrey interview, but I don't think I'd ever actually read any of this text. I had taken a biological psychology class and read books by Dawkins and, you know, had an education in this stuff, but I had not actually immersed myself in the original and it was not what I expected. It's very much, you know, if you're looking for, even though these ideas are hugely important philosophically and we should talk about why that is, but he himself, though he was called a philosopher in his lifetime, was definitely already steeped in a very scientific tradition. In other words, talking about specific case studies. And so that's most of what this is, is even though he says, you're just going to have to kind of take my word for it that there's evidence for all this stuff. It's just example after example after example. And I approach this first by listening to it, the LibriVox version, and quickly kind of got lost, like in terms of what philosophical stuff am I supposed to be taking notes on here? And it wasn't until I you know, went back for a second time through, or actually just the later portions of what we read also were much more memorable to me on a sentence-by-sentence basis. Even though the ideas are familiar, the whole style and the background was a very uh, strange terrain for me. I also threw in there two Stanford Encyclopedia articles, one on evolutionary thought before Darwin, up through Darwin, and one on just Darwinists, where his ideas have been taken since then and what points are still at issue. And so what I was looking at as I was going through here was what are the distinct claims that need to be defended separately as opposed to just saying it's just a unitary, it's Darwinism, especially because in this book, this is not The Descent of Man. That's his other big book. He doesn't even actually deal with people directly. My grandfather wasn't a monkey. Those kind of, uh, he's very modest. And in fact, the structure of this he kind of sneaks up on you with the big things that like we all might be descended from the same clump of cells or something, you know, he, that kind of stuff comes very late that the main question for the first two chapters is just arguing specifically against people who thought that there were the special creation of each separate species. In other words, species are real. And so he's arguing that's right. As Dylan said, species and varieties that there's no sharp distinction between those, the different kinds of pigeons versus pigeon species, that different uh, naturalists will count one distinction as a mere variety and another distinction as a, a hard, fast species one. I think there's going to be plenty for us to talk about both. I've figured maybe in our first half, we'd walk more through the text and what his ideas in here. And in our second half, we'd kind of open it up and freeform it a little more and reflect on the philosophical importance of the ideas and how they're being talked about now. So I listened to this on audiobook mm-hmm. as opposed to reading it. And 
this is the first time I have actually heard it in the original. And just like you said, Mark, it is kind of modest in a way. And the reputation of being earth shattering or somehow transgressive and revolutionary, especially with the extended discussion of all the various people in the beginning who have contributed the idea of variation and selection and all that, gives me the impression it's just sort of in the right place at the right time. But the one thing that struck me listening to it, maybe it resonates with the ear more so than with the written word, is his frequent and at least in the first half of the book unrelenting use of the term state of nature this framing existence as this fight for survival and i realize that that's the cliche but just saying the term survival of the fittest doesn't get across the consistent thematic approach to the idea of life as a struggle to survive which we i think don't experience maybe in our day-to-day life and which he points out distances us from what's actually happening in the world it was enlightening in that way and it's funny that phrase survival of the fittest is not even his phrase that that was inserted in it wasn't in the first edition i believe that it was it came from herbert spencer who is a philosopher that just jumped on you know, we talk about the bad things that were done with Darwinism subsequently. Well, it, it's not really that subsequent. It was like immediately you get some social philosophy, this social Darwinism, which in turn Darwin was familiar with and was encouraged by someone to insert that phrase that that was actually clearer than natural selection, which still sounds like who's doing the selecting? Well, it's nature. You know, he's using that as an image. He means purely mechanical causation but he still uses nature with a capital N and talks about it as a she, I think, here and there. And the reason why he does that is he's using the breeding as his original metaphor, right, to make this all convincing. So the breeder selects, the breeder can draw something on a chalkboard and say in X number of generations, give me a pigeon or a dog that looks like this, and they can do it. This is one of the things that seemed to really impress Darwin was the confidence you know, breeders, just from a pragmatic standpoint, from a standpoint of their craft, had no doubt about evolution and selection, at least in that narrow domain. So that's a very convincing, persuasive starting point. And so and then he wants to, to say, look, the way it works with breeding is the way it works generally. And the whole point of calling it natural, right, is to say, well, it's not really selection by a human being or by any sentient entity. It's natural in the sense of purely mechanical, as Mark put it. One of the things that impressed Darwin was also the fact that the breeders were able to select on things that anybody but the most sophisticated breeder, you would never even seen it as a difference. So this analogy, he's constantly going back to the activity of human selection and saying the differences can be very small. The times are very, very long. The number of generations are a thousand or 10,000. So as to really emphasize the gradualness of this process and that the real advantage that nature has over human selection is time. That is one of the primary arguments for him that it can be happening within nature all on its own because it can just take a very long time. 
one of the things that's going on in intellectual history at this point is the understanding of the geological age of the world and the changes in climate over the ages. And we all mentioned something about the fossil record. So there's lots of things going on about the notion that the world itself is potentially very, very old and that things are not now the way they were a long time ago, that there were different kinds of animals, different kinds of species, a different climate. And part of what's happening with Darwin is coming to grips with that in a very personal way. Ultimately, as Mark says, he doesn't point out us exactly, but the implications could not be more clear, especially at the end of chapter four, you have these different branches in the tree of life of these different species. And the implication is clearly that whatever we are, we have a common ancestor with every other living thing. And he does address specifically the idea of uh, complexity. Why would natural selection favor complexity? Because he's coming, again, Lamarck, right before him, who had a number of differences from him. And one of them was that he saw evolution as fundamentally progressive. It was fated there would be human beings or that there's this overall move toward orderliness, toward mind. I'm not at all familiar with how Lamarck actually puts this, but definitely progress was involved. The main thing with Lamarck was that your environment could lead to changes in an individual member of a species that then those changes that were made in them by their environment could be passed on to their progeny, as opposed to simply being selected for their relative adaptation. So the giraffe, for instance, gets its long neck by reaching out over successive generations, the reaching of the neck, that stretching can get passed on genetically. Yep. And there's a number of words that we should be a little bit careful about. One of them, as I was even just thinking about adaptation and the way in which adaptation has this sense of proactively accommodating oneself to. But in Darwin's account of it, the adaptation is a consequence of variation that then gets selected out by environmental factors and competition. It's not that the organism as a species has adapted to its environment. It's that it has variations within it that, when selected for, get reinforced. So it's random. This is reminiscent of Hume and the argument from design is that if you have enough time and some sort of mechanism, you can take randomness and produce something that looks teleological out of it. Yes. And in this case, natural selection, really, it gives us this mechanism, which to go back to Mark's question for the podcast, this mechanism, which explains the appearance of design in a purely mechanical way. And that is that despite the fact that these variations are, there's kind of a debate around this, but we can call them random for our purposes. They're not themselves designed to do anything because of the heritability of those traits and because of what Darwin calls the struggle for survival and the fact that the most adaptive heritable traits will over generations win out against those other less adaptive traits. You get this appearance of teleology. So you get a bee as a appendage shaped perfectly to fit into a certain part of a flower or something like that. Things that are adaptive in the sense they seem fitted to their environment. And they're fitted not by a breeder, not by a divine designer, but fitted by trial and error. I think a really great example of this is the way we talk about antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So we would colloquially say this bacterial infection has adapted to antibiotics. But what's really happening is if you just imagine a Petri dish with 10 million bacteria in it, 
and then you apply an environmental condition like an antibiotic, if it doesn't kill them all, what that means is that you've selected out, out of 10 million, say there's only three there, you've selected three out of 10 million that are not affected by the antibiotic. And those will then continue on and reproduce. And you will successively reinforce that characteristic, that variation in that bacteria, just like if you were selecting out short beaks out of pigeons. And you will get the ones that your population will now be dominated by those that are resistant to that environmental condition. That which does not kill you makes you stronger. Well, and then, yeah, so the other thing I wanted to say about that is the you there, right? The you is not any individual entity. It is the species as a whole, right? Because those entities get killed over and over again. (laughs) Right. That which does not kill you kills everybody else and leaves more room for you to breed. (laughs) Leaves you more food. (laughs) Yeah. Unless there's something like something analogous or maybe even more than analogous to something like psychological evolution of mind in an individual, that somehow there's something going on like that. It have to be, I guess, analogical because you don't have the kind of reproduction going on unless it maybe is a reproduction of ideas or something like that. How is his thesis any stronger than organisms or, or species evolve in response to environmental conditions? Because Lamarck is saying that as well. If the conditions dictate that there's plenty of room and plenty of food, the species expands, and presumably traits that favor the ability to acquire and thrive in that environment. Then if the environment changes, the traits that would be helpful, let's say in a drought versus something else, how is this anything other than a description of response to environment? Well, the big one is that in what you just described, you would have say, a whole bunch of different animals, and then the varieties of each of those species, and maybe some of those species would become extinct because of their environmental conditions. Of course, yeah. But you would select for the varieties that were the hardiest. So you'd select for the kind of orchid that was suited for this particular amount of water and sunlight and shade. But he goes further and says that that selection of variety is indistinguishable from the generation of species. And so you will progressively walk away from your original species that your common ancestor and generate significantly different ones that would not have been able to reproduce with their common ancestor. And you would get a, well, in our case, a human being from a common ancestor with an ape. I think the one important thing to note is that on an individual level, they aren't responding to their environment. That's the Lamarckian yeah, kind of thing. That's right. So, as a species, they are. Sure, sure. It's not that the giraffe is confronted with food up high and therefore has to stretch the neck and that gets passed on. It's not a response to the environment in that sense. Also, just the fact that the variations that get selected before they are selected are random, that that was a new thing. That to say we're responding to the environment, that means that. We're developing variations that make us survive better. But no, it's actually only a small number of the variations make us survive better in that environment. And those are the ones that get selected. And then there are all the other garbage variations that do not. So there's just a lot more waste, a lot of more profligacy of nature in Darwin's picture than 
mere adaption to environment. Okay. Yeah, something being an adaptation, actually, I think he thought would be quite rare. And I think the other thing, maybe we should insert the, like, the typical caveat about fitness and survival and things like that. Really, it comes down to, first of all, it's important to remember that the other animals are part of the environment. And the environment, you know, this is why we talk about niches as well. And one trait that's supremely adapted to one environment may not do as well in another. And when we say do as well, it's always relative to the competitors in those environments. So, you know, I think it's safe to say every species in a given ecosystem after an arms race that's gone on for millions and millions of years is supremely adapted. And if there's some circumstance that leads to, say, the extinction of one, it's just a matter of the relative fitness of another species sharing that niche, let's say, that happens to be a competitor. And then when we say fitness, we're just talking about reproductivity or the, the ability to pass on more, more offspring, essentially. So, you know, I think it's more accurate in a way to think about this question of reproductivity and how many offspring you can get into produce before you die. That's right. But I think one of the things that even Darwin ends up conflating and becomes important in things like social Darwinism and stuff like that is confusing fitness with goodness or perfection. Mm -hmm. So Darwin does both things sometimes. Sometimes he talks about how perfect the selection has been and how there's a kind of directedness to it and that adaptation is a kind of directedness. And other times he is insisting that it is non-directed in just the way that Wes was emphasizing that the fitness that we're talking about is a fittedness that's purely circumstantial as opposed to something that is directed towards genuinely improving or perfecting the species or perfecting a species into another species such that there are higher orders. And this is a kind of a conundrum that you have this process of selection that yields more complexity, as Mark was mentioned at the beginning. And furthermore, that that complexity seems genuinely more sophisticated and in some cases better in the sense of being able to adapt to more environments or having more capabilities, maybe just sheer complexity. Yeah, you might adapt the ability, for instance, to adapt, right? Yeah. And that's in a way what an advanced brain represents our mind. And if technology goes along with it, then potentially you have the ability to enter any given environment you want. You don't have to wait generation after generation until you grow a spacesuit in order to go into space. Yeah, You can make clothes yeah. and houses and have cultural institutions that allow you to spread all over the planet. So I think that's one question is the question of what it would mean for there to be more evolution to be progressive and lead more complexity, if that's true, and what does it mean? And then the other question, there's no doubt that Natural selection is firmly anti-teleological in the sense that it's not that things have ends that they're tending towards and that they're sort of tugged by those ends. That element of randomness does away with that. But that doesn't mean that we can't say that relative to some environment, a certain adaptation is good. It is good from our perspective to have a mouth, to have hands. Well, insofar as fittedness is good, right? That might be a different kind of question. Why is fittedness good? There's the survival aspect of it, 
we don't have to go down this road, but there's an aspect of fittedness that we appreciate just aesthetically, right? When two things or three things or an organization fits together. It's one of the reasons why Darwin finds the whole thing so beautiful. He effervesces many times about how beautiful this whole thing is, that everything is connected to everything else. That's one of the overarching signs that he's right to himself. And it also is so beautiful to him is that all of nature is deeply intertwined in all of its parts. Every organism, the environment, the climate, the geology, the interactions of the organisms is all intertwined, both in local time and then throughout time. Yeah, there's no section on the problem of evil here, but you could write one based on one of the things he starts with is that an analog to Newton's principle of inertia is that any species will just expand geometrically unless something is stopping them. So really, the health of the species requires something to stop them. So there have to be other things in the environment. It's actually good for the herbivores that there are carnivores running around eating some of them because otherwise there'd be too many of the herbivores and they'd run out of food. Starvation would have to lessen the numbers. So yeah, you need your enemies. Oh, as an origin of evil. (laughs) I was thinking that, that, but another explanation of evil would be that it comes along with ambition and as a corrupted form of other positive adaptations. So just like you have sickle cell anemia is a consequence of having two genetic factors and you, you will get sickle cell anemia and it'll, it'll make you ill. But if you have just one of those genetic factors, then it actually gives you resistance to malaria. And so it's a positive thing to have. So despite the fact that you'll have some manifestation of getting ill as a result of it, it generally benefits the species as a whole because the environment is selecting for people who have resistance to malaria. What are some of the other distinct theses that we care about elaborating here? Evidently, it was a big thing for him. You know, this is not even something that's talked about now, this fact that you can't draw a sharp distinction between varieties and species. Did anyone understand the like Stuart Humphrey's <laughs> argument to us to understand whether his his argument that there are in fact natural kinds was fundamentally anti-Darwinist that Darwin is trying to say that no no you think that there are distinct species but really the only reason you think that is because like all the different variants between those particular ones are not there if you had as you do in some other parts of the animal kingdom if you have a continuous string then you might say oh okay these are all just variations of the same thing sort of the context matters. Wasn't it the case, and I'm probably wrong about this, but a species didn't end up being a good candidate for a natural kind in the end. Is that right? Or for Humphrey? It didn't. Yeah. Okay. So we don't have to figure out now what does count, but... (laughs) Let's just say what's at stake for listeners. I think reading some of the background to this, people were really bothered. Even people who were scientifically minded and prone to support Darwin, they were disturbed by the idea that there weren't such a thing as species in some absolute metaphysical sense, that there wasn't some essence. This is a giraffe, although I'm not, is a giraffe a species? I'm not sure what the species <laughs> sure. are. Sure, sure. The idea that it's all just one big sort of soupy mess, and we are 
in a sense, nominalists about this, right? For our convenience and relative to our faculties, we pick out these stable organizations and the chaos, but they all sort of run into each other. I think that's disturbing to people. Now, that's not entirely the right way to put it the way I just put it, but because there are strong principles of organization at work, and that does provide, I think, even if you want to be a metaphysician about species, that gives you something to hang your hat on. But what you have to give up is the idea that species are sort of these inviolable and unchanging things. Yeah, if we think back to our Aristotle's De Anima episode, the whole explanation for why an embryo forms the way it does is because there's some kind of pre-existent form that somehow attaches to, it emerges from, it guides the matter to doing what it does. And we actually still do have something like that in the idea of the genetic code. And even though Mendel was prior to Darwin, there's a whole historical story there such that it wasn't until the 1930s that you get the modern synthesis, I guess is what it keeps being called. You know, when you talk about Darwinism today, you mean that the mechanism by which variation is introduced in the first place and determined what is heritable and what is not is through genetics. And they just didn't, Darwin, it's just amazing that he didn't have this, any of this at his disposal. So he was just saying, look. Flying blind. Yeah, I'm not trying to be a philosopher. I'm pointing out regularities. I'm pointing out, you know, this scientific theory of mine, it's kind of like the theory of gravity. Nobody knows what the hell <laughs> causes gravity, but it really brings together a lot of astronomic and local phenomena and microscopic phenomena, all, all this stuff. So my theory is just as powerful as that, even though I don't understand, <laughs> you know, a <laughs> fundamental portion of it. And so you might think that this old Aristotelian picture, which involved essences and fixed forms for each species, that that had some explanatory power that had been lost here. So Mark is saying that, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but even though it seems like the evolutionary account undermines concept of Aristotelian forms, once we get to DNA, it kind of revives it in some sense. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And they're much more specific. <laughs> it's not just one per species. Yeah, and even before DNA, right, there's the idea of there being genes, right? You have chromosomes, there there are elements that get passed by reproduction. And there are laws of heritability. And yes, laws of heritability. Mathematical exactly. stuff that Mendel worked out. I think that all gets very tricky because so much of our DNA is shared. Have you guys ever looked up some of the stuff, how much DNA shared with banana? I think we share 70% of our DNA with a banana. Say briefly, what do you mean by it gets tricky? What's what's tricky about it? There isn't this sort of like direct correlation between percentage of DNA shared or we're talking about forms now. And we're talking about, well, you know, if we say we share 50% of the form in the sense of the DNA form, right? But that's really meaningless from the standpoint of the phenotype. The phenotype isn't correlated in that way. So a tiny, tiny difference in DNA could mean a huge difference in phenotypes and the actual visible physical forms of animals and you know if we were aristotelians we would want to think about the phenotype so we can talk about genes or whatever for darwin it was just these unknown factors around variability and heritability but if we're actually talking about an essence or a blueprint for an organism we want to think more about 
the phenotype and more about its functions and those sorts of nice Aristotelian ways of defining things. And by the way, those are also very relevant to evolution because the mechanism for all this, and I think it's easy to forget this, what's actually happening out there in nature is these physical forms are interacting with each other. That's the mechanism of selection. Chromosomes don't have sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and or they don't have to eat and you fight and, you know, the bird goes to a flower and its beak is too big. Well, come back when you're a hummingbird, you know, that's <laughs> come back when you're a hummingbird. What's inherited gets determined by all these interesting some of them are just relationships between shapes, shapes of bodies. and But of course, a lot of it is functional. How does a body function and how does it relate to the environment and other sorts of bodies, animal bodies and plant bodies around? This is why some people call for another extended synthesis of evolution. And exactly what you're talking about is part of that debate of whether it's really a selfish gene that is acting out and that that's what is really the sole actor effectively with a kind of a coat of an organism around it? Or is it, like you said, that there are determinant factors based upon those organisms and their phenotypes that are actually what is being selected for by evolution, not the genes primarily? And does that materially affect how we should understand evolution. So I was surprised how much I, I felt like Darwin did anticipate some of these questions that I'd heard subsequently, mm-hmm. like having to do with group selection or altruism. In other words, if everything is just survival of the fittest and individuals within a species are competing for survival, then well, why would something like homosexuality, which does not have an obvious reproductive advantage, why would that not just be completely expunged from every single line or altruism in general, just anything that wouldn't make your gene survive. And so he doesn't use terms like kin selection, like the fact that if you're sacrificing yourself for someone, you're probably sacrificing for people that share a lot of genes with you. So it still seems like you're going to have a little more of that characteristic that makes you sacrifice than your brother who was sacrificed for. But Probably there's a lot of overlap. And so in general, the incidence of that kind of group behavior, Darwin acknowledges stuff like this, that there would be social behaviors that would be selected for. And it's not necessarily even that individual that is benefiting. It's also the case that not everything that is true about an organism has been selected for. Right. This is a good place to point out that it's not the case that we should be looking at every trait of an organism and saying, okay, so what, how is that selected for? Because it might just be a byproduct of some other selection. It might just be a trait that's associated with somehow conjoined to causally another trait that was actually selected for, or there are other factors that they talk about with evolution like genetic drift where you can have traits sort of dominate a population that weren't actually selected for it. The nature of heritability actually makes it possible for a certain set of traits to dominate. Even if there were no such thing as natural selection, you could get that kind of phenomenon. So if we look at something like homosexuality or altruism, we shouldn't be necessarily thinking about what led to that adaptation. But I mean, in that case, homosexuality is just not breeding for the most part. So like that should be very strongly selected against. But it is, right? 
So it's not that 99% of human population are homosexual. Yeah, but it's not the case that it should be strongly selected against because you're looking at things at the individual level, right? In the species, it could have lots of benefits to a species if it's associated with other traits that are... As long as it's not preventing the reproduction of the species, then it's not going to be selected against. That seems a misunderstanding that I think you have to have a story that would have to say, let's say we've established that homosexuality, there's some sort of genetic component to it that's been kind of established. But for it to persist in the populace, so it's just not the case that human being is just going to have a set of essential characteristics until you say, oh, well, this is a certain instance in the population, and it doesn't matter that all the individuals who are exhibiting this behavior, who exhibited this, they don't mate because the species as a whole is fine. Well, that would imply that whatever genetic component there is for homosexuality is somehow recessive in the heterosexual population. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it is correlated to sociality in general. So there's like a lot of positive stuff that having the type of genes that right. would make you have a one out of eight chance or one out of 20 chance or whatever it is of being homosexual is correlated with a whole bunch of stuff that really is positive. You're more popular with people. You're stronger. Careful, you're Mark, more careful. beautiful, whatever it is. <laughs> there's, but none of that has to be true, right? It just has to be that it is not selected against. I just I don't understand why you would think it's not selected against if there's no actual breeding. Yes, but just the recessive part is good enough, right? You don't yeah. have to have a positive reason for selecting for a given trait. That is not required for it to exist at all. So another way of putting this is why, why do animals have the forms that they do? The principal answer is it's just random. It's chance. And that's why they all look so different. <laughs> Yeah. And that variety, in fact, it's another aspect we haven't mentioned it for Darwin is that the more variety in a species and then also in nature itself is a sign of reflection of the strength of that species and the strength of the ability to adapt. Because that's the, for lack of a better term, that's the engine that allows for adaptation is variety. So say more about that. Yeah. Why? Because the selection isn't guided, right? Think of just a, a plane. You, you have a, a whole bunch of different shapes and then you have a sieve that goes through and some of them pass through and some of them don't. That kind of selection is what's going on. There's some mechanism of selecting that is going to capture or annihilate or reduce the population based upon the variations that are there. So if there was no variation and you had a sieve that came through that captured all of them, then in this case, it'd be all, could be all be annihilated, right? If they don't have an instance of variation that allows them to survive that, that selection, you'll just annihilate everything. And so the more variety that there is, the more, kinds of selection can be survived by the species. Yeah, the more ecological niches it can slip into through diversification. That's true, too. We're talking about intraspecies variety here? Is that what we're talking about? They're both there for Darwin, right? There's the health of the species itself and its own variety within it. But for him, there's also just the general organic variety in the world 
as being the source of variation. That source of variation allows for continued, uh, I want to say progression, but continued change of the biosphere, of the makeup of the biological world. Yeah, that latter part of talking about ecology, the health of the ecosystem in that way, I did not see much of. I mean, he, as you've mentioned before, he rejoices in talking about how everything is connected together and he gives some very ecological talk. I think, you know, he might be one of the earliest folks, I don't really know, to engage in this kind of discussion. Just his drawing these pictures of, uh, yeah, if you reduce the number of cats, then you might have different colored flowers. Like, and, and he draws a connecting thread between those two. But when he's talking about the health and the benefit and the variation, he seems to always that I've noticed just talking about from the point of view of a particular species. Despite my comment earlier about the problem of evil, there is no overall the health of the environment, the health of the ecosystem talk that I noticed in here at least. So the closest that I can come to, and I agree with you, Mark, I mean, he more or less focuses on things like the amount of variety. Well, there's one aspect which we didn't mention, which is that crosses, intercrossing gives you more robust individuals, but it's a slightly different issue than the idea of variety giving you a stronger species. But the place that's closest to me is I'm in my edition, I have the Penguin Classics version, which is of the first edition. It's on page 163. It's towards the end of the natural selection chapter. The paragraph starts, but I must here remark that I do not suppose that the process ever goes on so regularly as is represented in the diagram. It's after the diagram that he has. He talks a little bit about effectively niches, and then he says, as a general rule, the more diversified in structure the descendants from any one species can be rendered, the more places they will be enabled to seize on and the more their modified progeny will be increased. In our diagram, the line of succession is broken at regular intervals by small numbered letters marking the successive forms, which have become sufficiently distinct to be recorded as varieties. But these breaks are imaginary and might have been inserted anywhere after intervals long enough to have allowed accumulation of a considerable amount of divergent variation. It's not as plainly speaking what I was attributing to him. All right, well, that's a fine place to stop. Let's come back next week for part two, or if you become a partially examined life citizen, then you don't have to wait. You can just go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and download the whole unbroken ad-free thing right now. So, uh, yeah, well, I think there's still some more bits from Darwin that we want to make sure that we're clear on, and then we'll go crazy. All right, see you, everybody. <laughs>